It's been a year since busloads of migrants first came to Chicago, and people keep coming. Yesterday, four busloads of people arrived, and more than 13,000 migrants have arrived overall. Now, many of them, they're hoping for asylum, and the number of people sleeping at police stations as they wait for shelters tops 2,000. So let's discuss what's working, what strategies have had to shift, and what's ahead, plus how you can help. Joining us now is Stephanie Wilding, CEO of Community Health. Welcome back. Good to see you. Thank you so much for having me again. And also with us, Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, director of the Pilsen Food Pantry. Hi, doctor. Hi, good afternoon, Sasha Ann. I wonder, first of all, how you're making sense of the fact that it's been a year. It's been a year of this. I'll start with you, doctor. Wow, it's it's hard to believe it's been a year since um, the Texas border crisis began. We have uh, really moved leaps and bounds, but I feel like we are almost in the exact same place as a year ago, and kind of, in fact, maybe behind. Um, We continue to take care of people every single day that are experiencing homelessness, that are living in police stations, and that also have barriers of language, immigration, financial, et cetera. It's it's really hard. Yeah. Stephanie, speaking of police stations, as I just mentioned, there are more... people at police stations now than there were back in the spring when we first started hearing about that and when we had you on the last time. Yes. Yeah, so we, um, as you mentioned, we're at 2,000 folks um, in police precincts, including over 700 children. And, um, you know, I think when we spoke in the spring, uh, that number was closer to like 600 to give folks some perspective. Yeah. And, and what are 2,000 people doing at these police stations? I mean, give us a picture. Yeah, I mean, the experience of the asylum seekers at the police station. So um, what is very typical is from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., they are asked to leave the precinct with all of their belongings. Um, This facilitates cleaning. It allows the police station to have its day-to-day business going on without, um, you know, individuals sleeping, you know, on the floor Mm -hmm. or being on the floor. And so if you pass a police precinct in the city of Chicago, you will often see many people sitting outside of them with all of their belongings. Um, many churches in around in and around the precincts have opened up their doors during the day for, for folks to be able to go there, to have a meal, sometimes access showers. Um, but, you know, the reason that we have climbed to a census of 2,000 is because when, for example, as you mentioned, four buses, I believe 160-ish people arrived yesterday, there's no beds for them to go to. Mm -hmm. And so um, the buses continue to come and the police precincts, the the floors of a police precinct is the only place for people to sleep. What kind of medical needs do people have? Um, So the medical needs are are pretty, you know, consistent with what we have been seeing since we were here in the spring. I think one area that I would emphasize has been a change that we've seen um, that I did mention, but I think I really want to drive home is around both physical and mental health trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for individuals who came here, particularly if their country of origin was Venezuela, they have endured a months-long journey that was incredibly physical as well. Um, We have heard consistent stories from the people we have cared for around um, kidnapping, sexual assault, um, and, and the trauma of that. And there's also the trauma of, um, you know, there are individuals we've been caring for at the police precincts who have been there since May. 
Yeah. And so that means they've been sleeping at a police precinct for months. And there is that trauma of what is going to happen. What is, you know, not having your basic fundamental needs met, mm. like showers, food, et cetera. And then there's the physical trauma of that journey. So we're seeing, um, you know, significant injuries that were experienced crossing the Darien Strait, um, crossing the Rio Grande, um, and having to to care for those. So the physical and mental health trauma is significant. It's a lot. And this is all on top of what you mentioned. Last time you were on the program, you talked about respiratory issues and dental mm-hmm. issues and just lots of allergies. Yes. Rashes even, you know, on, on some folks' bodies. Yeah, and something to keep in mind is if, you know, not only in the precincts, but also the temporary shelters, um, we're heading into respiratory surge season. And so there's a, a significant need to vaccinate for flu and COVID um, because, you know, we're risking um, what will happen if, if we're not doing yeah. some of that preventive work as well. Now, your organizations, uh, they've both had to change approach and, and strategy since we last spoke. Uh, Dr. Figueroa, in the spring, you were involved with the volunteer-run Todo Para Todo shelter in Pilsen. So what was this shelter able to accomplish? Todo Para Todo shelter uh, was in operations for nearly four months for 16 weeks and was able to cumulatively cumulatively, sorry, <laughs> 260 folks, uh, um, just like Stephanie said, about a third um, were children. It was a it was a very challenging um, situation trying to retrofit a building into being emergency housing, um, being able to arrange all the things that people needed, clothing, um, clothing, food, uh, childcare, et cetera. Um, it was the volunteer efforts were, were certainly um, episodic and pulsatile where mm-hmm. we had enough volunteers. Um, when you run an or when you run a program strictly through volunteers, the issue is that you lose a lot of institutional memory, and that was um, one of the biggest challenges there. Not having a project manager, not having someone in charge yeah. of um, ensuring that patterns that were uh, negative patterns that were emerging were dealt with, made it very challenging for safety concerns and to ensure that resources were equitably distributed. And and the shelter closed just a few days ago. So uh, again, your your biggest takeaways then from this experience. This is the second shelter that I've helped um, helped run. And uh, what, I've, uh, what I've insisted is that without uh, a true infrastructure, it's just not sustainable. Everyone has very good intentions, but being able to take care of hundreds of people daily is, um, is not for the um, it is not for folks that do not have deep pockets. It is a very expensive way to take care of folks, especially when it's reactive. We have, I'm very heartened to see that the city continues to identify um, vacant spaces and move people, move people into them, but it really continues to, to make us think about and question whether or not housing is a human right and yeah. what we're going to do to get a hold of this situation. I mentioned earlier that I feel that we've gone, that we really haven't moved forward in the past year. We've, we've moved back quite a bit. And we had a similar trajectory at the onset of COVID when we had to decompress shelters and um, didn't have enough space for people, people that had COVID that were getting kicked out from their families, et cetera. It was a really very difficult situation. And so to be here three years later and to be grappling with the same the same challenges just is, yeah. is very um, disappointing to me. Yes, I think we have to learn 
from these challenges and we all have to talk about what what are the basic needs that we all agree a sanctuary city a sanctuary state should be providing well stephanie community health you've also had to pivot right we've talked about the fact that you were running these mobile clinics at the police station but what's what's happened yeah, so in May, um, we had launched um, Mobile Health Street Medicine program for the first time ever in less than 10 days, so we could go out to the police precincts and provide care. And at the time, um, we had um, been under the impression we'd be doing that through the end of June, um, given the timelines at the time that seemed feasible, mm-hmm. um, and very quickly learned that this was going to have to go on for longer. So so similar to Paso Paso, we... Um, just wrapped up our mobile health clinics at the precincts um, at the end of August Mm -hmm. and are pivoting to what is really core business to us, which is serving as a medical home to immigrant communities. You know, at the police precincts, we're able to do a lot of triage, a lot of assessment. But ultimately, what we learned is that folks need to be able to get into care. And at Community Health, they can also not only see a primary care provider, but we can get a free prescription medication in their hand that day. Yeah. And so the other thing that we are experiencing in the last few months is that because we're known as a medical home for immigrant communities, you know, as a small community health center, we were receiving over 100 new patient referrals a day. This was affecting wait times for your other patients, too. For all patients. And um, for this population that may be moving to different precincts, may be moving to shelter, getting them into care quickly is really, really vital because we may not be able to find them again if we don't. Mm. And so we made the difficult decision to pivot our approach to stay consistent with what we are what we've been excellent at for 30 years which is a a medical home and to instead develop really strategic partnerships with other larger entities that are going out to the police precincts to give them direct access into our scheduling system so that they can get get folks in so that we're still caring for these populations but you know as as was just mentioned it wasn't sustainable for us to continue um to go to the police precincts without understanding what the longer term strategy was going to be across the city for that type of care and um you know in a prolonged crisis um if i've learned anything in the last three and a half years it's really important that folks lean into their core work and break down those silos with other organizations and their core work in order to to create some efficiencies mm, when good point. it feels like there's not a clear strategy. Dr. Figueroa, we've been talking about people waiting at police stations to get a spot at shelters. We know that there are 18 city-run shelters. What can you tell us about conditions there? Um, a lot of people... I think that people are doing the best that they can do, um, but regardless, there are not enough resources for everyone who is there. Um, People still routinely sleep on the floor um, and uh, are in very crowded congregate settings, uh, makes it very difficult for people to rest, makes it very easy to spread communicable diseases. Uh, We have lots of gastroenteritis and 
um, upper respiratory infections such as cycles and cycles and cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, although, uh, although Stephanie mentioned uh, that community health um, has uh, has stepped back from the mobile mobile services, the um, Pilsen Food Pantry continues to um, to support and sponsor the mobile migrant health team that visits five different police stations and has gone to shelters as well. So it's it really is very difficult um, trying to mitigate. In uh, preventable outbreaks, preventable situations, preventable trauma. Yeah. Um, we also remember if you're running a shelter, you need to have areas in the shelter that have all the supplies that people need very neatly organized. That that infrastructure doesn't exist in, in emergency shelters. We're retrofitting spaces. Um, and because, because people really don't have a space, their own spaces, they're all living on top of each other, it makes it very difficult um, to not re-injure people, to avoid to avoid trauma. There is a lot of risk of assault mm-hmm. in our emergency shelters, just like in in any in, in other like in long-term shelter situations. Security is always a very large risk. People that have that are trying to work that have money that can't that can't um, really safely secure their money that get robbed. Um, people who are sexually assaulted. Um, and then other stuff that comes with people being idle, a lot of predatory behavior with substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. That's another part. Um, new emerging substance use disorders and risk of overdose, which we know has occurred several times in city shelters. There's something else that's happening. The city, as we know, it is urgently trying to get more shelters up and running, but mm-hmm. there are community members pushing back and they're they're raising concerns all over the city about you know shelters being built in their neighborhood. Quick thoughts on on that controversy, Doctor. I think it has a lot to do with the unmet needs of our chronic community members experiencing homelessness that shows a lot of this outrage and also also a lot to do with not having a comprehensive plan. Um, Housing is one part of it, but what else do people need when they're being emergently housed? And um, I think that people have some reasonable concerns about community safety. I think there are multiple um, unsafe events that have occurred in, in our emergency shelters. They've also occurred in other parts of the city, but regardless, they have occurred. It's, it's very difficult to, to continue to, plan, to build the plane as we're flying it. I think we need to, I think we need to really pivot and decide how to do this in a more efficient and comprehensive way. We have a lot of community-based organizations with a lot of knowledge that are very willing to partner with the city, um, but we really need to be sure that the city is going to trust us and and let us um, cooperate with decision-making. Recently, Mayor Johnson joined Governor Pritzker and Senator Dick Durbin. Uh, They're asking President Biden to speed up the process for authorizing work permits. Without Mm -hmm. these, we know folks cannot legally work. They can't get enough money to pay their rent. And I want us to listen real quick to a clip from the mayor talking about this at a press conference. The city of Chicago cannot go on welcoming new arrivals safely and capably without significant support and immigration policy changes. So, Stephanie, briefly, what kind of support and immigration policy changes would you say that you want to see from the city, state and federal government? Yeah, at the federal level, um, and to give some fo- folks some perspective, um, th- these individuals are, are often seeking asylum. And through the asylum application process, you're not eligible to apply for a work p- permit until 180 days after you have applied for asylum. And 
that is best case scenario, mm-hmm. is often a much longer wait. Um, and if you do seek work illegally and you are caught, that could jeopardize your ability to gain asylum in this country. And so a really key element here is that folks are not able to start their new lives here because they cannot work. And so an example is providing temporary protected status, um, which would be done um, by the federal government mm-hmm. that would allow this population to gain the right to work immediately. These are individuals who, who are coming here stating here stating that they're not safe to go home and they want to make a new life in in this country and as a sanctuary city, as a sanctuary state, um, that has many workforce shortages in many sectors, um, we have a real opportunity to continue pushing that um, really key policy change because it both, um, one, it's the right thing to do. Folks folks are starting their new lives here, but but also it it will help people to be self-sufficient. Yeah, so all eyes are on the federal government, it sounds like, right now. From my perspective, that's really, really critical. I I welcomed seeing Senator Durbin and Governor Pritzker and Mayor Johnson together in a press conference. I think that was a really critical step to see them united. And we're not the only city asking for this change. It's a pretty... consistent message that's coming out of every sanctuary city. So perhaps we'll see some movement on that front. Uh, before we go, Dr. Figueroa, I know a lot of people listening are wondering how they can help. So what's needed right now? Is it is it donations? Are you accepting donations at the, the Pilsen Food Pantry? Is it is it food? What are you looking um, for? We have a whole, yes, uh, thanks, Sasha Ann. We, um, all of all of the community-based organizations that are doing migrant-facing work um, really have the same list of things that they need. Um, uh, clean, you know, clean in good condition, bedding, um, and that includes yoga mats or inflatable mattresses uh, so that folks can can sleep more comfortably. They're looking for clothing that's clean, new underwear, new socks, enough shoes for people. People don't have really basic things when they come off of um, off of the bus or the plane. It's, it's shocking. Um, luggage, et cetera. So at, at Pilsen Food Pantry, at, it's on Instagram and on Facebook. We have all this, uh, all of our wish lists on there and then also on our website, PilsenFoodPantry.com. But there are a number of community-based organizations throughout the city. You can find them on Refugee Community Connection on Facebook. Um, there, um, there are a number of, of news articles that describe, and you've also had a list that you attach to your, um, to your article. Right. So that would be helpful. Thank you. Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, Director of the Pilsen Food Pantry, and Stephanie Wilding, CEO of Community Help. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you.